Amen. You guys take a seat. How do you like this fall weather, huh? Summer being gone? Yeah. Um, if you didn't know, if you live in the exile like we do, it's for Scythe County's fall break, so some of them are enjoying a little bit of sunny weather down in Florida. The rest of us are stuck here. But good news is, how many, confession time, how many of you guys have already bought a $9.25 pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks? Anybody? Come on, let's let that judgment fly. Now, you're really going to be judged if you got a little taste of that cold weather, you pulled out a scarf and started playing Christmas music. That's not there yet. All right, well, James chapter 3, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me in James chapter 3. As you're getting there, there's a story that I've heard about a family that uh, it's that tis the season, right, where you start taking family pictures for Christmas, uh, and you get all dressed up for these pictures, and if you didn't know... If you're one of those people that don't have kids or your kids are a little older, like, there's a lot that's involved with family pictures, okay? They're really expensive. You've got to do prep work for weeks in advance so you don't die because if you're not careful, family pictures always end in World War III. So what we do is we get our kids, like, together because we know, like, those cute little Instagram pictures that you see, they don't start that way, all right? They start with threats. Actually, no, they really don't. They start with diplomacy. Right? Hey, look, kids, if you'll just listen for 30 minutes, I'll buy you whatever you want. Like, you can have a car. I don't care. Because if I can get, like, if we can get through this, we're going to be okay. Because I've been told, like, the threats came behind closed doors, so the diplomacy has to happen with you so that I don't die. All right? So what we do is we we get everything ready, and and you you, you fight for an hour, like, it's awful, and then you smile, and you take a picture, and it ends up on Instagram. And and everybody thinks, oh, look at that cute little family. Well, anyway... There's, there's family pictures that are going on, and, and, and the family, they're all dressed up together. They look like the clown show because everybody's got matching outfits on, and, and, and they, they go to this field because that's where you take pictures. Like, everybody's got poison ivy, and you're clawing through fields, and you get there to get this perfect picture. And everything, everything's great. You, you go through this, and then a couple days later, they, the, the wife gets the pictures back. They've been edited. They, they, they get sent back, and she, they're terrible. She hates them. I mean, like, like in my family, it's like, eh, for some odd reason, they always look good for me, but not for anybody else. That's how it goes. Well, the dad is super frustrated, okay? He's frustrated. He's spent a lot of time, a lot of sweat equity, a lot of money to get these pictures, and he goes back. He's endured much suffering, and he goes back to the photographer, and he's like, the pictures are terrible. Like, we're not paying for them. I don't know what to do, and the photographer looks at him and says, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy, all right? You ever notice how powerful your words are? I mean, it doesn't really matter who you are. When you say something like that, it stings. A lot, lot of us, a lot of us have been in these situations. You pour your heart out. You've worked really hard on something, right? You, you spent time preparing, and then you get up and you do it, and that nice gentleman just decides that it's the perfect time to come and give you critical feedback on what you could have done better. Anybody ever been there? Right? Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's you've labored really, really hard at work all day, and you just want to come home for an affirming word. Uh, like, like, hey, sweetie, you're, you're doing a really great job. And that's not at all what happens. You're like, dang, really? Like, that's how this happened? Or, or sometimes when you think about your parents, you think about the critical responses you got growing up. Right? That's what comes to mind. It's not the other times. It's the, it's the critique. You got a 92 on your report card. You could have did better. You could have got a 95. You're never going to get into that school if you don't do this. If you don't, if you don't work harder. Hey, my, my son yesterday, um, I'm going to brag for a second. He's four years old, and he hit two home runs. Right? I, I'm not kidding. He goes, awesome. Coach pitch, and if I walked up to him, I'm like, bro, you could have hit three. 
Like, that's what we think about, and our words have a, have, have a major impact on people. Maybe for you, it was a teacher that you grew up with that never thought you'd be good enough, or a coach that was overly critical. What you don't often realize is that the influence that those people have on your lives are incredibly deep. Maybe it's the other way around. You didn't believe in yourself, and there was a teacher that believed in you. A lot of us have those stories. I, I had a, a guy growing up that he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and, and it sparked a perpetual change for me to want to be better. What we know, what we know is your words are powerful. Almost every study on the planet shows this. Almost every study on the planet shows that if you're in a position of influence and all of us are, what you say actually matters. One study, one of my favorite studies, is called the Positivity Cycle. Here's how it goes. It says that encouragement literally has the ability to choke the negative emotions out of our lives. It's, they say it's like a warm word can disable any conflict. Paul says it like this in the book of Romans, that your words are like heaping burning coals on somebody's head. Okay, what they do is they starve the negative oxygen out of a room. Now watch this. Here's what the positivity cycle says. It not only deflates the situation, but it creates a self-sustaining perpetual motion towards goodness in somebody's life. You hear what I'm saying? A positive word doesn't just have a one-to-one impact. A positive word can actually change the trajectory of somebody's life. By how you speak to them, you can create a self-sustaining positive impact. When you take the time to give specific and genuine encouragement to the people around you, you can actually reshape the emotional trajectory of their lives and change their lives for the better. Or For good or for bad, most of us have been shaped by the things that people have said to us. Again, if you grew up your entire life hearing, Dan, you can be good enough. I love you. I care for you. Man, you can achieve anything you want. Guess what normally happens? You normally have an emotionally healthy life. If you grew up hearing, you're never going to be good enough. Like, just try harder. You're such a disappointment. Guess what ends up happening? You tend to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. What I want to show you today is just how powerful your words are and why you and I have a huge responsibility to use our words well. James chapter 3, listen to what James says in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. All right, before you check out and you think, this has nothing to do with me, James is talking to people like you, Billy, people who get up on stage and speak for a living. Let let me just say this. Obviously, James' original context was spiritual teachers in the first century in the church. However, I want to tell you that all of us are teachers in some way. All of us have influence over something. Some of you are school teachers. Some of you are stay-at-home mom teachers. Some of you are managers at work or little league coaches or whatever you fill in the blank. All of us are teaching somebody something. Some of you remember that the greatest impacts that you've had on your life didn't come from these monumental figures. They came from a small word of somebody in a passing sentence that made a huge impact on your life. Y'all, the person who you speak to the most has the most impact on your life, okay? Do you want me to tell you who you speak to more than anyone else in the entire world? Yourself. 
So you might not think that you're a teacher of anybody, but I'm just telling you, the things that you say about yourself when you look in the mirror have a massive impact. If you view yourself as just a failure, or if you look at yourself in the mirror and you just think, if I was just prettier, or if I was better looking, or if I lost some weight, or whatever you fill in the blank, it changes who you are and it makes a difference on your life. So if you don't think that you have an influence on anybody in the world, let me tell you one person you do have an influence on, you. With that in mind, check out what he says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Here's the big idea. Here's what James is getting after. Write it down. Stewardship. You see, what God has entrusted to you, and God has entrusted different things to different people, he has entrusted those things, and he expects us to do something with it. So, if God has given you money, well, there's a stewardship behind how you spend your money. There, there's an entrustment with that. Right? If God has given you time, there's a stewardship with how you spend your time. Now, God has given you a mouth, and there's a stewardship or an expectation with how you use your mouth. Listen, God has given every single one of us something. He's given us a platform with someone, and he expects us to use it differently. Now, by the way, because James takes this so seriously, this stewardship of how we talk, I decided to do a bit of research. And what any respectable researcher would do, I did. I went to Google. Might have spent some time on Wikipedia, but that's a trustworthy source. Here's what I found. Here's what the internet told me. Because again, the internet's always right. The average man speaks about 2,000 words a day. The average woman, anybody want to take a guess? Between 10 and 20,000 words a day. Now here's what's important. Here's what's fascinating about this study though. Both men and women speak about the same amount of words that actually have any significance, between five and 700 words a day, the research shows. Which means, honestly, most of the words we say aren't all that important. But what I wanted to find out was, what's the average, and you extrapolate the average age of life, or life expectancy, what's the average amount of words that we speak over a lifetime? 800 million words is what, they, what researchers say on average we speak over the course of our lifetime. That's a lot of words. And every single word matters, although most of our words are empty. That's another, another story. Here's the question that I have for you as we jump into this. Of the 800 million words that you will speak on average, are you being a good steward over those words? You've been, you've been entrusted with the most powerful force on the planet, and James wants you to ask the question, are you using your words to communicate the heart of God or not? That's really the question. Again, with that in mind, I want to work through this passage like we always do. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is saying you might want to check yourself before you get in a position to teach others. So let's talk about that for a second. Why are the reasons, what are a couple of the reasons why most of us want to teach? I'll give you a couple positive and a couple negative. Here, here's a positive reason why most people want to teach. Well, you're called to it. Don't take that for granted, Right? Like, I, I know I'm a pastor, but here's what I think about pastors. I think most pastors are pretty good communicators, pretty moral people. They're probably pretty good at business because they've got to handle a lot of different things. And they could be pretty successful doing something outside of a vocational ministry setting. They have decided to do this. By the way, pastors get such a bad rap. Let me just tell you, the majority of the guys take massive pay cuts and they love you so well. It's only the few people that you see on the, the news, the bad apples that make it bad for everybody else. I'm telling you, those guys work really hard. They do it because they're called to it. How about a school teacher? 
Did you know that most school teachers come out of their pockets, uh, and it's not deep pockets, a lot of money to buy stuff and resources for their kids? My kids are always coming home with gifts and candy. I'm like, dude, you don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to buy all this stuff for our kids, but they do because they love your kids and they're called to pour into the next generation. A lot of people do this because they're called to it. Others of us teach because we're passionate about a certain subject, right? You might be passionate about teaching people how to use the product that you have in your business that produces great jobs and opportunities and cultivates the earth in such a way that brings fruitfulness to other people's lives. That's a good calling. Again, there's no difference between a secular and a sacred calling. God has called all of us to different spheres of life to use those callings for his good and glory. Okay? Some of you, you come alive when you watch what you've taught take shape in other people's lives. Maybe you coach, like Matt. Matt, when you're coaching your kids' baseball teams and you, you show them how to have their elbow up and they crank out a home run and you watch it happen, you're proud of them because you've been called to give yourself to something. Those are good reasons. Here are a couple negative reasons. Power. Whether you think so or not, there's a power that comes with a platform. It's a power and an authority to speak. And some of us, if we're not careful, will use that influence, whether it's with the Little League baseball team or a platform in front of a church, to manipulate. And if you're not careful, that happens really quickly. Others of us, the negative reason might be prestige. Sometimes the platform gives you a place in society that you wouldn't have had. Uh, you wouldn't have otherwise occupied in your anonymity unless you had a position to speak. The question that I have for you is this, is as you examine your motivations for the position that you have as whatever kind of teacher you are, what are the reasons that you do what you do? Think broadly, right? If you are a parent and you teach your kids, do you teach them to dominate authority over them or do you teach them as a passionate calling to see them succeed? See how this applies to every sphere of life? It's not just like when you stand up on a stage, it's every sphere of life. That's how this applies. So James gives two reasons that you and I should be careful of the stewardship of our teaching. Check them out. They're real clear. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's number one. Number two, and we all stumble in many ways. The first reason that you and I should be careful about the stewardship of teaching is, well, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged. And now, by the way, this word here, it's not, it's, not a, it's not like heaven and hell judgment. I'll get to that in a second. It's a stewardship judgment. By the way, I love this. If you, if you look at that, I love how James says we. He's not putting himself in the place of judgment. He's not saying you're going to be judged. He's saying, no, I sit underneath that too because God has given me a stewardship over my life as well. We are going to be judged. This judgment, again, that, judge, that James is talking about is not a heaven and hell judgment. Guys, God's not up in heaven looking at you saying, how did you do with the gifts I gave you? And if you don't pass my test, you're going to hell. No, that's called works righteousness. That's where religion comes from. What we know and how you work through passages like this is you have to understand that Jesus has already bought your price of redemption. The gospel is that God loves you unconditionally. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what Jesus did. So when God sees you, he sees you in all of Christ's righteousness. You have to get that right first. That's not the judgment he's talking about. You don't live under the bondage of slavery because Jesus has freed you with his unconditional love. Here's what James is talking about. He's talking about a judgment of refinement and of eternal rewards. Watch this. Paul says the same exact thing in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says this. 
for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's your foundation, okay? Now, with that in mind, now, if anyone builds on the foundation, that's your works, that's what your stewardship, with, good, uh, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built <coughs> on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. It's the same idea. God has entrusted you with gifts, and you have a a stewardship to do something well with those gifts. So the question you have to ask yourself is, am I building people up, or am I tearing them down with the things that God has given me? Is my teaching moving the needle in people's lives? Now here's what will happen. One day, when you and I get to heaven, when we stand before God, it's going to be like a performance review. He's going to look at you, and he's going to say, I've given you all these amazing gifts. What did you do with them? Now, you know why that's important? You know why that's awesome? Because that performance of you will not involve sin. That, you see, you're going to be perfect, which means that when you and I stand before God, what we're going to do is we're not going to be jealous. I, I love that. Like when Sarah stands before God and God's like, well done, well done. You didn't get it all right, but you did some amazing things. I'm going to be standing in the corner championing, yes, praise God, give it all to her. God, like uh, hook her up. See, the reality is we get to celebrate each other's wins in such a way because we're not going to be jealous of anybody. But the point is this, those of us that God has entrusted with the responsibility of teaching, which is All of us are going to be judged with a higher standard for what we did with what God said. And that's fair. Jesus says the same thing in the parable of the talents, right? He says, hey, I gave you a lot. Well, there's a lot more that I'm going to call you to do with that lot. Y'all, this should lead you to a sense of comfort because, again, the judgment which God is talking about is not a salvific judgment and yet a sense of fear or reverence or awe at the same time. You have a tremendous responsibility. You realize when I stand on this stage, I walk up here with, with a sense of fear and awe. Like, I'm called to herald the word of God, to steward that gift. And God is going to hold me accountable for what I say, which is, by the way, why you don't get eight lessons from Uncle Billy. Like, you don't really care what I have to say. I want to teach you God's word, and I work really, really hard to deliver that. But at the same time, there is a tension here because I know that when I deliver God's word without apology, some of you are going to get mad. I, I get that. But can I just say this? Again, I'll say it in a humble, humble, humble way. I care way more about what God thinks about me than what you think about me. And God has given me a stewardship of this gift. Now, with that in mind, let me also say that you've given me a stewardship of it as well, and I don't take that for granted. It is a huge privilege that you have allowed me the opportunity to speak for a little bit of time into your life every week. And I want to steward that really well. I don't want to waste your time, and I want to give you what God's word says. You see, there is a huge responsibility when people and God gives you the privilege of teaching. Don't take it for granted. God has entrusted you with specific responsibilities, and he will hold you accountable for what you did with those responsibilities. So here's my question for you. How often do you slow down and think about the words that you're going to say before you say them? 
Here's the second reason that James gives. You ready for it? Because we're all sinners. That word stumble there, it's actually the same word for sin. We don't just stumble in many ways. Here's what James is saying, and it's in the active present tense in Greek, which means that you're not just a sinner one time, you're continually a sinner. Do you know why that's important? James isn't trying to shame you. Here's what he's trying to show you. We are all the same. All of us are. So be careful that you're not that guy that sits there and says, do as I say and not as I do. Right? We need to be people that, 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 that we're careful that what we say and what we do is actually the same thing. We need to be a living example of the things we teach. Not a perfect example, but a living example. By the way, this is why you need friends in your life. Because here's the reality. There's this thing called blind spots. You know what blind spots are, right? They're the things you can't see. Let me give you an example of this. Last night I was... I was watching a football game. Uh, it didn't go so well for me, so I don't want to talk about it. But um, it only got worse, okay? So I'm sitting on the couch. I'm watching a football game. And matter of fact, uh, my buddy's in the room with me. He was there, and he didn't help the situation at all either. So my, my daughter walks up to me, and she points to the back of my head, and she says, Daddy, where's your hair? I'm... Really? Like, I know I'm going gray. Now you're telling me I'm going bald. Right, so I was like, take a picture of it. I don't, I don't believe you. Take a picture of it. She took a picture. I looked down, and I was like, oh, gosh. Like, almost, almost threw up. It's a blind spot. Some of the blind spots I need to hear, some of them I don't. Like, I would love to have been ignorant of that one. But the reality is, in most of our lives, we have blind spots. We have things that are right there, like the cul-de-sac that's growing on my head. By the way, I have four kids, and it's their fault. So I just need them to know. And I need godly people in my life, like Dan, who can call some of those things out to make me better. See, we need that. We need that. Like the great theologian Buddy the Elf says, you sit on a throne of lies. It's true. You do. And so do I. And the quicker we realize that, we stop talking down to people. And I've told you this before. I know it's cliche, but it's hard to look down on others when you're always looking up to God. And the only way you do that is to have a humility about you that says that you and I are first sinners and then sinned against. That that's where we need to be. We don't need to act like perfect teachers. We don't need perfect teachers. What we need is we need to be teachers that understand we're not perfect so that we can be humble enough to operate out of humility. That's the key. And then he says, if anyone stumbles in, 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 in what he says, I'm sorry, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If you underline words in your Bible, the one that you want to underline there is the word perfect, because it does not mean perfect. This is where the English language has, we need some help. Here's what he actually means. It means genuine or complete or mature. Here's what he's saying. If you learn how to control your mouth, you prove your maturity. So let, let me just say it this way. The person who learns how to have self-control is a mature man. And if you look at it from a different angle, if you look at the inverse of that, the main qualification for a teacher needs to be his maturity or their maturity. And the main mark of maturity is do you know how to control your mouth? Here, write it down. Do you control your tongue or does your tongue control you? That's the question. Y'all love this quote. Says having a soft heart in a cruel world is courage, not weakness. You realize it takes a lot more courage not to send that tweet. It takes a lot more courage and humility to just keep your mouth shut every now and then. It's not easy. 
A soft heart in a cruel world is not weakness, it's meekness. It's courage under control. I love this quote by Kerry Newhoff. Criticism is always easier than contribution, which is why so many people stop there. It's so easy to criticize. Let me just ask you, before you criticize, have you ever put yourself in the position to do what that person's doing? It's not all that easy. Instead of criticizing all the time, do something. Make a contribution. See the point? The most courageous and the most mature thing you can do with your life is train yourself to be wise and thoughtful with your words. Now no, watch this, because this is so important. James's main point is if you can't control your mouth, you can't control anything in your body. Guys, I, I want to give you some dating and, uh, advice, all right? Let me, let me give you some dating advice. Let me give you some hiring advice. If the person can't control their mouth, if they have loose lips, if they can't control their anger, if they're always gossiping and they never build each other up, that is the number one indicator that they can't control their bodies either. That's what James is saying. So the next time, next time you're hiring somebody, you need to ask yourself the question, are they a person that can control themselves? Here, when I interview somebody, I always ask them about their previous employer. You know why? Because if they always say bad things about their previous employer, guess what they're going to say about you when they leave? No, again, let's, let's not be the pot calling the kettle black. Are you the kind of person that's always uplifting? Like Andy Stanley says, I love this quote, are you the kind of person that the person you are looking for is looking for? All right, keep going, verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at a ship also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See, we frame reality, by the way, in, in our identity through communication. Have any of you guys ever gone horseback riding? Anybody? A lot of people. I've done it once, and let's just say it's not good on the legs, so uh, I try to stay away from the horses. But you know one of the things you do the first time you go horseback riding? You realize just how powerful that animal is. I remember standing there with my daughter just petting the back of a horse's leg thinking, that thing is massive, and that animal is powerful. The most powerful animal in the world has such a small thing inside of its mouth that controls them. I think my brother knew this inherently, by the way, growing up, because he did this little fish hook in my mouth, and I'd just be like, I'd do anything you wanted. The reality is, if, you, if you're tracking what James' analogy, your tongue, your tongue is the most powerful instrument on the planet. That little tiny thing boasts so much powerful power, and how you use it can change the trajectory of someone's life. The same thing's true about ships. James is creating an image in your mind with this massive, powerful ship that the winds are pushing around are controlled by just a small rudder. You, you realize that if you knock the rudder off that thing, you destroy the entire ship. I, I heard a story about a, a World War II um, German battleship that was supposed to be like the, the most incredible force on the planet. And, and, and the, the way that they stopped it is they took out the little tiny rudder at the bottom and the whole thing failed. You know, I'd argue that your body, your body and your mouth have the ability to change all of society. By how you do it, you can influence and change life for good or for bad. Excellent book. I always try to recommend books. An excellent book called, the, uh, it's called Atomic Habits, written by a guy named James Clear. He, he tells a story in the book about a Polish man who, um, he, he was convinced that you can train people to do anything you wanted them to do by changing their environment. So he said, he, he, I, lead you not, he, I, I kid you not, he, he found a wife, convinced a woman to marry him to do this, which is 
blows my mind already. And they wanted to train children to be the best chess players ever. So they had three kids, and he changed their environment. He put them around chess all the time. He spoke positive words of affirmation around chess. He brought the chess players in to speak to them, and guess what? His three kids became the best um, chess players to ever live. James Clear, in this book, as he's talking about habits, says that there were three fundamental things about these kids that change everything about them. And he says it's the same three fundamental things that will change you too. Here's what he says. He says, number one, the close. What he, what he says here is that the people who are closest to you have the most influence over you, and that's why they matter so much. Let me just tell you, when I get that angry email from somebody that doesn't really know me, it doesn't really, like, it doesn't bother me all that much. I just say, click, delete, done. When my wife tells me you're acting just like your dad, it cuts so deep. So deep. Because the people that are closest to you have the most powerful impact on you. So let me just ask you, the people that are closest to you, how do you speak to them? Do you speak down to them or do you speak life to them? James says the second one is the many. He tells this illustration about a, a subject in, in, in a uh, psychological study, a guy that comes into a, an experiment, and they give him three parallel lines. Two of the parallel lines are the exact same, and one of them is exponentially taller. And, and they ask the guy, hey, tell us which line is taller. 100% of the time, that line. Easy, right? But then they hired two or three actors to come into the room with him, and they asked those actors to pick the wrong line. Guess what happened? A hundred percent of the time, this guy picked the wrong line too because he was influenced by the community and didn't want to look like an idiot. Do, do you realize that the people you are around, as James says, shapes you more than you know, right? You show me your five closest friends, I will show you what your next five years will look like. It is true. Every study on the planet shows you that the crowd has a massive impact on your life. So my question for you is, what crowd do you spend your majority of your time around? Number three, James says, is the powerful. The powerful. These, I would argue, are the people that have influence over your life. They're your parents or your pastor. They're, they're your closest friends. James says that we always imitate the people we envy. So here's the question. When you think about your life, when you think about your family, your community, and the leaders that you've given an impact in your life to, do they shape you and influence you for the better or for the worse? When you position your kids to be around certain people, are they speaking life into them or death into them? When you think about the concentric circles that you fall into, are you stewarding that small but powerful device that God has given you to bring life or to bring death? Let me tell you why all this matters. James's main point is this, that the most powerful force on the planet is not the atomic bomb. It's your mouth. And you can bring life and you can bring death by how you live. So we need to learn to tame our tongues like a bit in a horse or a rudder on a ship. And if you don't do this continually, your lives will wreak destruction. Watch. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. Do you know how a forest fire starts? A spark. Do you know how most relationships end? A spark. Do you know how bitterness and resentment start? A spark. Contrary to popular belief, most of those things aren't these big things. They're just a spark that festers and it takes off. And the tongue, James says, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, 
setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You're like, dang, James. I thought you were supposed to be encouraging. You're like Debbie Downer over here. Can I tell you the good news? You ready? You can't tame your tongue. You're like, why is that good news? Because God can. That's what James is getting after. You remember last week we talked about this idea of sanctification. After you become a Christian, there's a process by which God changes you from the inside out. That's important. It's inside out. You see, one of the ways that Paul describes this, this change, this spiritual transformation, is he describes it through the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What I want to show you today is how you cultivate that is not by pursuing any of those things. You know, when I was growing up, back, back when I was growing up in Florida, there was orange groves. I don't know if you knew this, but like... Um, like, there's this deadly disease that killed all the orange groves in Florida. Well, there, there was a time back when we actually had orange trees and kids played outside. Um, both revolutionary thoughts. Well, we'd go and we'd run around and uh, we'd walk through the orange groves and we would grab oranges. And I'm telling you, you've never had a good orange until you've had a freshly picked orange right off the tree. And we'd pick them and we'd eat them and we'd walk around and then we'd throw it on the ground and we'd grab another one. The reality is, most of our Christian life looks like kids picking oranges. Uh, ooh, ooh, I need to be a better person. I'm going to grab that one. Ooh, I love this. This one sounds like if, I, if I'm generous, God's going to bless me, and I grab that one. You, you know what happens to oranges on an orange tree? After a while, they fall to the ground, and they either go bad or they rot. And, and that's what ends up happening with a lot. This is why New Year's resolutions don't work. I want to be a better person or stop cussing or do this. I don't want to watch that anymore, and I grab and I grab and I grab. The Christian life does not work like that. It does not work like a laborer picking fruit. The Christian life is like the cultivation of a soil where the roots grow deeply and then it produces a fruit. Now watch this. I mean, you may have never been told this ever before. If you want to have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, self-control, stop pursuing all those things and start pursuing Jesus. Because Jesus will produce in you the soil as the living water wells up inside of you to produce a tree that will produce fruit. Now, here's another thing that most farmers know. Now, this is all theoretical to me because I don't do that kind of stuff. But what I know is when you plant something, it takes a long time for something to grow. Your life is the same way. You, you want immediate results, but that's just not how it works. Sometimes God is cultivating, growing roots deeply, and then it will form in you these things. So if you want to watch your mouth and have self-control, stop trying to watch your mouth and start pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And what will end up happening is you'll become a different kind of person. That's what James wants you to know. That's why he says you cannot tame your tongue, but God can. That's the whole point. The fruit is produced from the inside out. The self-control is a process of God transforming you from the inside out. There is hope because of the gospel. You are a work in progress. You know, you may not see it at first, but God is doing a good work in you if you will let him. There is a tree of life growing inside of you with the fruit of the Spirit ready to explode in your life if you will just let him stop pursuing good works and start pursuing the giver of the good works. And he will cultivate those things in you. You know that word that James uses for hell there? It's the same word that Jesus uses for hell in the Gospels. It's the word Gehenna. 
Gehenna, if you didn't know this, was actually the garbage dump that was outside of Jerusalem. It was a valley in which they put garbage into. Here's what, here's what James and Jesus is saying. Okay, your words are like a dumpster fire. It continually sets ablaze a bunch of trash that will continually burn up if you're not careful. If you're not careful, that's what will happen. And yet, at the same time, if you'll let God tame your tongue, it will change you from the inside out. James is saying that your, your untamed tongue is like a trash pit that will destroy the world. But let me just say this. Life is a battle, and it's a battle of continual transformation. And it takes a lot of attention every single day. But it's a work that God does. So every day you are either inviting heaven down or you are lifting hell up. Every day you are either the arsonist or the firefighter. Every day you are either creating life or inviting hell. Let, let me just, though, give you a couple practical ways, if you'll let God cultivate this inside of you, <coughs> that can create the soil for this. Number one is this. Submit yourself to the Lord. It all starts there. And I think that's James's main point. You can't tame your tongue, but God can. So if, if you'll create the soil where every single day in your humble estate you come to God in prayer and you invest in his word, what he ends up doing is he ends up working a good thing through his spirit inside of you that changes you from the inside out. Now watch this. There's, there's a tension in this passage. If you remember back to verse 2, James says a mature man, a perfect man, is somebody who's able to bridle his tongue, right? And then he says you can't bridle your tongue. You see the tension? Here's, here's the tension. If you'll let God do it, you can actually grow to maturity. You can actually do this. Right? This is, this is a work that God wants you to take ownership of as you pursue him and as you submit yourself to him. You will grow. Number two, change your environment. Y'all, we don't understand how influenced we are by the people around us. It's like this. Do you know how to avoid a forest fire? Don't move to California right? Do you know how to put yourself in a position to speak better words? Be around people that don't speak bad words. You know, I'm just telling you, like, do you know what breeds gossip? Gossipers. They're like a cancer. And, and as you hang out, it spreads in you because, because that's your primary community. So if you'll change your primary community, you will become like the people that you are around. It is the simplest, easiest way to begin making that change. Here's number three, set boundaries. Like if you know that certain environments trigger you, well, set good boundaries that you don't put yourself in those environments, right? If you're susceptible to being angry at certain times of the day, don't try to have hard conversations in those moments. Like three minutes left in the Florida game yesterday whenever we lost the onside kick, I don't need to go have an important conversation with my wife. And I don't need to hear from you either. Some of you text me. You're like, ah, there's Florida again. You can keep those texts to yourself. They hurt me. <laughs> you know who you are. See, if you know you're insecure about certain things, don't put yourself in positions that you can be influenced by those certain things. Create good boundaries. Here's the last one. Pray. Pray. Instead of talking about people, talk to God. Can I just tell you it's really hard to be angry at somebody that you're praying for? I know this. This is when I'm really mad. You know what I start doing? I just start praying for you because God tends to change my heart and soften my heart as I pray for blessings over your life. By the way, I had to tell somebody this the other day, and I need you to hear me say this. Forgiveness and prayer is not the same thing as reconciliation. 
It's okay to say, I pray for you and I forgive you and I love you, but we don't necessarily need to be in relationship with one another. That's okay. Because the thing that God tends to do most when you pray for somebody is change you. You know what the most practical thing I do? You can take this, dads, if you need this. Sometimes when I'm coming home from a long day at work, I pray in the driveway. You know why? Because, like, I'm all giddy. I just got done with a run, you know. I, like, my work day was good. And I walk in the house, and I'm like, I'm excited to see everybody. And Allison's excited to be like, you can take that baby. Because I've been doing this for 12 hours. And everybody, everybody's exploding. It's like World War III. And sometimes I'm like, whoa, what just happened? And what I don't realize is, obviously, it's a hard day. She got spit up all over, and I just came from a run. And she's like, oh. Sometimes I need to change my own heart. So I, I kid you not, I pray. God, give me empathy love and support the moment that I walk in this house. Give me endurance to go grab a kid and to love my wife well. Sometimes you need to reorient yourself for prayer because if I don't, I'll walk in the house and be like, yo, she just wanted a snack. Why are you biting her head off? And it's like, no, no, no. This is like 14 hours of just wanting a snack, right? I need to, I need to calm myself down in any situation before I walk in. Here's the point. Work smarter, not harder. You have the spirit of the, the living God inside of you, changing you from the inside out, and he wants you to grow a strategy in you so, so that you can cultivate the soil for God's growth. All right, let me go quick, because I, I realize I'm, I'm running short on time. Verse 9, with it we bless the Lord our God, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Let me just say real quick. If you show up to church on Sunday morning ready to worship and then you leave here and you gossip about people and you hate the people around you, you're making the same exact mistake that they made. See, Jesus even says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if you recognize this or realize this, but those two things go together. You can't love people well if you don't first love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can't love and worship God if you are all jacked up with the people around you. See, one time, even Jesus said, as a guy was coming in to worship him, he says, hey, why don't you leave your gift right here at the altar and go take care of your problems first? Because I don't need that if you're going to be fighting over here. Because the horizontal, or the vertical and the horizontal relationships and the love, they go together. James is saying that you are a walking contradiction whenever you come into worship Jesus with your lips and your life is like a raging hellfire because all you're doing is talking about people. Listen to me, gossip, gossip is saying behind somebody's back what you'd never say to their face. And flattery is saying to their face what you'd never say behind their back. And both of those are wrong. James is saying you need to be the same person Monday through Sunday, Monday through Saturday as you are on Sunday. Listen, you might not like everything about me and sometimes I might say some stuff up here. You're like, oh, I don't know if my pastor should have said that. You know why I do that? Because the person I am on Sunday is the person I am Monday through Saturday and I want you to know that. It's just, I am that, and more than I want you to know that, I want my kids to know that. I don't ever want my kids to walk into here and be like, who is that guy? Like, he's a jerk at home and he's super nice up here. No, I want them to know that I'm the same jerk on stage as I am at home. <laughs> It matters, guys. Verse 11. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. That last statement to me says everything. It's like whenever you're, you know, out at sea, here's how it works. You know that that water is deadly. 
but you haven't had a sip of water in like six days, and all of a sudden that deadly water starts to look real good. And you think, you, you justify, I just need to let it touch my lips, just a little bit, and then you take, you take just a little bit, and then you drink a little bit, and it tastes so good, it's so satisfying. And then it poisons you. It's like gossip. At first, it tastes real good, doesn't it? Oh, just to get it out. But it poisons you. It's like lashing out, that anger. It, it feels good, and then it poisons you, or vengeance. It's the best kind of medicine until it kills you. Here's James's point. It's actually, I think, twofold. I think James's point is this. The fruit that is produced is a product of a specific kind of tree, right? It's obvious. An apple tree, can't, apple tree cannot produce oranges. A spirit-filled life does not produce evil. James is saying that God's people can't be double-minded, like he's already talked about, partial, angry people. We need to be spirit-filled, loving people that cultivates a life in the gospel, So if anger is always coming out, death and gossip and criticism are always coming out, you need to ask yourself what's inside. And it's a two-way street. Like if I shake a water bottle and water comes out, it comes out because water was in the bottle. Now that's one side, that's what James is saying. The other side is this, if I drink salt water, it, it will actually change what's inside and it will poison me. Listen, if your tongue is always ruining people, it reveals your heart. Now, the same thing's also true, though, if you spend all of your time with people who are always being sarcastic and continually tearing people down, it's going to poison you, too. So here's my question. Are you becoming more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, or are you becoming more death, gossip, anger, and bitterness and criticism? The hope in all of this is, though, you don't have to pursue either of those things. Pursue Jesus. This is so important. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated inside of you, and you cannot produce it any more than an apple tree. You can produce a pear tree. God has to do the work in you, so stop pursuing the stuff and start pursuing the source of the thing, and God will do that. It's transformation, not changing. You know, I heard this illustration one time, and I think it's phenomenal. There's two ways to hold up a balloon. The first way is this. I can put air in it, and I can just pat it up in the air, and the balloon will stay afloat. And oftentimes, you know, a lot of you, that's what you want your Christian life to look like. It's kind of weird. Like, you come in here, and you're like, oh, just yell at me for a couple minutes. Like, set me right. Smack me in the face a couple times. Oh, like, and I'll go home, and I'll be like, that was so good. Like, you got all up in my grill. So just, that's one way to do it. But do you know what the other way is? Change what's inside the balloon. Take the air out and put helium in, and it'll float by itself. See, religion will tell you, just smack yourself. Do better. Do this. The gospel says that he'll put his spirit inside of you and change you from the inside out. Friends, what you and I need more than anything is we need the truth of the gospel. We don't need behavior modification. What we need is life transformation, and it's already been pursued by the blood of Jesus. The way to tame your tongue is by resting in the gospel and letting the Holy Spirit do the transforming work in you, and that is good news. Because if it's up to me, I would never do it. But because it's up to God, because it's up to God, it is possible. So here's how I want to end today. I want to end by giving you the opportunity to actually use your mouth in a good way. I want to end by prayer, by setting you for just 30 seconds or so for you to pray to God, to use those words, those powerful words, because God will actually hear you. Maybe, maybe for you, for the first time, it's actually like, God, I want you to change me. Put your spirit inside of me, Jesus. I want to submit my life to you. Your tongue can actually change the trajectory of your eternity if you'll use it in that way. Maybe for some of you, you need to repent. Man, you know it's festering inside of you, that word that you said to that guy, and you need to go say it. 
For others of you, you just need to speak to your father. It's been so long. It's been so long. So why don't we do this? Where you're at, by yourself or with a group of people, I want you to speak to God for a couple seconds. And then about 30 to 40 seconds, I'll close us in prayer and we'll stand up and we'll worship together. So why don't you do that now? Father, the thing I can't wrap my mind around is that you actually incline your ear to our words. I can't begin to fathom that the God of the universe wants to hear from me, and yet you do. So Lord, I don't know what prayers were prayed. I don't know what people are sensing or feeling, but I ask that you would bless them, that you would hear their prayers that you would change them from the inside out. That you would give us freedom from whatever bondage we're carrying. Maybe the prayers of forgiveness that we need to offer, God, maybe it's a release that you would give us. Maybe it is just a reminder that your mercies are new every morning. Maybe, God, it's a changed eternity because finally we've submitted ourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, would you do it like only you can? So, Father, as we pray, we ask that you receive, bless, and change. In Jesus' name.